Thank you. Praise God. Uh, let's just commit the time ahead into the Lord's hands. Let's pray that indeed he will be glorified. That as we listen to what he has for us this day, we will be attentive to hear what he is ministering to us. And as we do so, let us commit that we will indeed be obedient to his voice and his word. Father, we surrender ourselves into your hands, Lord Father. Let your will be done in our lives, Lord Father. We ask, Lord Father, that you take total charge. Keep us focused upon you, Lord Father. And that as we walk with you, Lord Father, you will lead us in good paths, Lord Father. We surrender ourselves into your hands. Thank you, Father, for being with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, uh, I was really excited, you know, with the idea that we are meeting online today and not in the church building. Now, some of you may be surprised. Now, why am I saying that? You see, the, the point is that as I kept preparing the word that I'm going to share with you, I realized that it's a pretty long message, going to run a long time. I don't know whether you're going to be here till tea time or dinner time. I have no idea. Okay. But if we were in church, especially with the reduced timings that we have been given, my message would have been significantly shortened. And since this is the first Friday, which means we would have had Holy Communion if we have met in church, if we had met in church, then my message would have only an introduction and a closing, but there will be nobody. So I'm actually thankful to God for working through the Supreme Committee to have this online service. All right, having said all that, let's go on. A few months back, we started a study series on different aspects that Jesus spoke on in the Sermon on the Mount. And we know that that's one of the longest discourses that Jesus ever gave at one particular point of time. We laid the foundation a few months back and we realized that as we went through the last three uh, studies on the Sermon on the Mount, we realized that Jesus was primarily addressing his disciples and, the, and his followers. There might have been other people who were listening to what he was saying, but the message was primarily intended for those who know the Lord, because that's where the impact is. And so while addressing his disciples, Jesus was laying down a new standard of living that all followers of Jesus should try to follow. And so today, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, you need to live a standard that is different from the world. Your standard of thinking, your standard of living, your standard in language, your standard in relationship, your standards in attitudes, your standard in your relationship with God needs to be much higher than what we might be used to as the standard standards that the world offers us. And through his teachings, Jesus clearly showed us that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and many others were actually living well below the standard that God expected his people to follow and live by. They might have thought that they were living to a high standard. They might have assumed, the Pharisees might have assumed, maybe others have assumed, and maybe we assume that we are living to a godly standard. But the question is, are we really living to a godly standard? And as we read and study today's scripture portion, I hope we will readily be able to see how to relate better to our Father God. You see, that's the focus of what Jesus 
spoke on in a set of verses, and that's what we are going to be focusing on. And in fact, as we go through those verses, we will see that Jesus is almost laying bare the heart of God, the heart of the Father. And so the title of today's message is Understanding the Heart of God. Understanding the Heart of God. And this is the fourth part in our Sermon on the Mount series. Shall we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6? Uh, let's keep it open there. That's going to be our main portion. Uh, Matthew chapter 6. We will be focusing on the first 13 verses uh, this afternoon. But we will take them in two parts. We will first read verses 1 to 4. And a little later we will read verses 5 to 13. Now basically you will see that through these 13 verses... Jesus is giving us two important lessons in these 13 verses, two important lessons. Number one, practice goodness with the intention of pleasing God, not man. That's number one. And number two, pray to God in order to communicate with him, not to impress men. We're going to elaborate on these two points as we go along. So number one, practice goodness with the intention of pleasing God, not man. Let's read Matthew chapter 6 verses 1 to 4. And I'm reading from the New King James Version. Take heed that you, not, you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. In the New King James, sorry, in the New International Version, verse 1 is written like this. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. In the New Living Translation, the same verse goes this way. Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Now, what is Jesus telling us here? What was Jesus telling his disciples as he sat and taught from that mount by the Sea of Galilee? And you know, it, if you uh, recollect something that we saw the last time, or maybe the time before that, uh, or even if you recollect directly from the Word of God, there is something that Jesus is saying here that seems to be in contrast which, with something that he just said one chapter back. Turn, to me, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. And what does God say there? What does Jesus tell us there? He says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And yet now, one chapter later, 33 verses later, Jesus says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Now, what's the difference? And you know, if Jesus was here right now, I would ask him, Jesus, what are you trying to tell me? Do I do my good deeds openly before men or in secret where no man can see it? I'm confused because Matthew 5 is seeming to tell me one thing and Matthew 6 See, seems to tell me something 
contrary to that? Well, the point is there is absolutely no need for confusion because in Matthew 5 verse 16, Jesus is laying emphasis that the good deeds we do must bring glory to God the Father and not to any one of us. That's the emphasis in Matthew 5. Whatever good deeds you do, the glory has to go completely to God the Father. And you, as the doer of the good deeds, you should not get a smallest iota of glory or admiration. In Matthew 6 verse 1, he's just laying it out more bluntly. He says, don't do your good deeds publicly in order to be admired by men. See, Jesus is able to discern what people are thinking, why people do what they do. And often, men and women do things for the admiration of men and women. But Jesus is saying, not on, don't do your deeds to be admired by men. If that's your motive, if that's your objective, you get your reward from people. That's fine. Take your reward and go. It's got nothing to do with God. He's not going to reward you for that. He's not going to give you a pat in the back. You are not building up crowns in heaven because you've already got your reward. You can't be rewarded twice for one act. You see, remember this. Jesus was speaking to his disciples at a time when most Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, teachers of the law, whoever they were, they did things in such a way that they got the admiration of people. The Pharisees and the Sadducees loved to stand in the corner of streets and pray loudly. Whatever they wanted to say or do, they would do it in those areas, in the marketplace, so that people could see them. Now, people were used to that. But Jesus was saying, that's not the standard that we follow in the kingdom of God. That may be your earthly standards. And if that's the standard you want to follow, receive the reward from there. But to be a follower of God, Jesus was telling his disciples then, and he is telling us today, you don't do anything for yourself. You need to do a lot of good deeds. But why? Because the glory has to go to God, not to you. Jesus was simply raising the standard for his disciples to follow. Now, apparently, in the temple in those days, you know, when offerings were collected, there was the offertory box. Now, you remember Jesus talking and talking to people and talking, I mean, discussing about the widow who dropped in a mite. Okay, so there was an offertory box usually metal, sometimes wood. And there was a funnel which came out from that box into which you dropped your offerings. Now remember, those were days where money was predominantly coins, metallic coins, not notes, not paper notes. So the more money you brought in, it, was, it would be difficult if there was a small slot like we have in Bethel, for you to keep dropping in your coins. So there was a funnel and you could just come and dump your coins inside. And so when you dropped one coin, like the widow did, one might, it would make a little noise. But when you came and put a lot of coins inside, it would rumble and rattle and there would be a lot of noise and people would say, who is this putting in so much of coins? And you would be admired because you are contributing more. 
So people lived in that kind of an environment. Is it any different today? A lot of things that we do, isn't it to gain the admiration of people? I was trying to uh, update my LinkedIn profile sometime last month. And as I was doing it, I kept adding and adding and adding because that's what I was told I need to do. Your LinkedIn profile needs to show everything about you, everything that you have done. And I wrote this and I did this and I did that and I did this. I painted this stone and I painted that stone and I did this and I did that, whatever I did. And a day later, I was very uncomfortable with it because I'm not used to that, that kind of a LinkedIn profile. So I said, I went back and I removed everything. And then I was asked, why did you remove all of those things? You need to project yourself. People need to see and read and admire what you have done. You see, that's the world today. You promote yourself. You let admiration lift you up. The admiration of people. But Jesus was saying, that's not the way we work in the kingdom of heaven. All glory has to go to God. If you are where you are today, at the topmost position in your company, it is not because of you. It is because your God has placed you there. It is God who, makes, who needs to get the glory for that. You take the salary. Let God get the glory. None of the glory needs to be directed at us. So when we do righteous acts without exhibiting ourselves to men, God himself rewards us. You see, for every task, there is a reward. And if you have got the reward from men, that's it. Story done. But when you don't get a reward there, God the Father says, no, I've got to reward this person. And God's rewards are hugely bigger, better, more fantastic than anything the world can offer. And that's where we come to verse 4, where this is God's promise to you and to me. Your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Our reason for service to the Lord is not about ourselves but it should be patterned after the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8, the second part of verse 29, 29b, he says this, For I always do those things that please him. If this is what Jesus said, then that is the standard you and I, as his disciples and followers, should embrace today. So what is the take-home message that we have in these four verses? The kingdom of God is all about God's glory, not our image. The kingdom of God is all about God's glory, not our image. Number two, pray to God in order to communicate with him and not to impress men. That's the second major lesson that we get in the portion that we are looking at today. Pray to God in order to communicate with him and not to impress men. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 6 and we shall read verses 5 to 13, a passage very often referred to as the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer. And again, I shall read it from the New King James Version, verse 5 onwards. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in synagogues and on the corners of the streets, 
that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now that's probably a, a set of verses that many of us know by heart. We have probably said the Lord's Prayer from our early days in Sunday school, Friday school, children's church, wherever. It might be one of the earliest things that your parents taught you and you memorized it. But Jesus is telling us something through this prayer and that's what we are going to be looking at. Not at it superficial, but let's go a little deeper. Okay. Now consistent ongoing prayer has been a challenge to many people. And it was a challenge to the disciples also. This passage in Matthew does not indicate any request that the disciples made. But if you turn to Luke chapter 11 verse 1, we read these words because immediately after verse 1 comes the model prayer of the Lord. But these are the first words that we read. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he seized that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And then Jesus said two specific things of importance and these are recorded in verse 5 of Matthew 6. So there was a request. The disciples wanted to be taught how to pray. And today, if, if we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, let's not assume that we know how to pray. And I'm not casting aspersions on anybody. And I'm not being judgmental on anybody. But I'm just saying that as the disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray. Let us try to understand this passage in that context. And then you see Jesus said two things of importance. Back to Matthew, 5 verse, uh, Matthew 6 verse 5. Number one, when you pray, not if you pray. According to Jesus, prayer is not optional for his followers. It is the done thing. It is a must-do part of our daily living. When you pray, pray like this. Okay, not if you pray. When you pray. And the second thing he said is this. You shall not be like the hypocrites. This is the second time he's using the word hypocrite in the verses that we have taken for this afternoon. The original Greek word that is used, which is translated into English as hypocrite, the Greek word is hypocritos, hypocritos, which means pretenders or actors or those wearing a mask. 
Jesus was telling his disciples then and he's telling us today that our prayer should not be a drama to impress those around us. Don't be a pretender in your prayer. Don't be an actor in your prayer. Interestingly, Jesus often addressed the Pharisees as hypocrites. Turn with me to Matthew 23. We're not going to read these verses, but they're all having the same words. Verse 13, verse 14, verse 15, verse 23, verse 25, verse 27, verse 29. In every instance, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! They were pretenders. They were not the true thing. They were actors. They were putting on a drama for people to see in whatever they did. And again, if we go back to Matthew 6, verse 5, Jesus goes on to say this. They love to pray. That's the hypocrites. They love to pray in such a way that they may be seen by men. Admiration of men. That they may be seen by men. And then Jesus gives us this very specific direction in verse 6. Pray in private. Just between you and your Father in heaven. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut the door, Pray to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Pray in private, just between you and your father in heaven. Now I know at this particular point, some of you will be looking daggers at me. Some of you must be wondering if I'm bringing in some new doctrine. After all, yesterday, Thursday was corporate intercession in our church. We prayed as a body together. That's public prayer. So why am I insisting on pray in private? Go into your room, close the door and pray. Then what we did yesterday, was that wrong? What we do in vigil night, is it wrong? When the church prayed for Peter, when he was in prison, is it wrong? No, not at all. You see, let me make one thing very clear at this point. Don't misquote me, but please listen carefully. I am not saying, I am not at all trying to say that the only prayer acceptable to God is your private prayer made in a closed room. No, I am not saying that at all. Throughout the New Testament, we see many examples and teachings on personal prayer and on public corporate prayer. Each has its place. And in the church and in the lives of every one of us, there is a place for personal private prayer and there is a place for corporate public prayer. One does not replace the other. Each is a separate entity. And I am not in any way trying to say that joining together for prayer is wrong. No, not at all. Okay. Public prayer has its rightful place. But the passage that we are looking at today, where Jesus spoke on the mount by the Sea of Galilee, that's about personal prayer. That's not about public prayer. And that is what we shall focus on and we shall take lessons for our personal prayer from these verses. I hope I'm making myself very clear because I don't want to give you the wrong impression that public prayer is wrong. Not at all. Okay? So coming back to verse 6, Jesus says, pray in private. 
Pray in the quietness of your room. Pray where you will not be disturbed by man or machine. Pray in intimacy with your Father in heaven. Now this was a strange teaching to his disciples and the people around. You see the Jews always looked at Yahweh God as a judge sitting on a throne. He was far away from them and they were far away from him. They were talking about a formal king-servant relationship. King-citizen relationship. But there was no love relationship. There was no father-child relationship. That was a new thing to them because they have always known God as a judge, a God who gave orders and they would do it or they would not do it depending on which part of the history of Israel you want to look at. So to the Jews, God was not approachable. He was inside the Holy of Holies and only the high priest could approach him. And that too only once a year. Remember what the Samaritan woman told Jesus in John 4 verse 20. She said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And what did Jesus tell her? Verse 21, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Jump to verse 23. And the hour is coming and now is when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. As a child of God, you have the spirit of God in you. And it is your spirit that communes with the spirit of God. This is not a physical communication. This is not a physical relationship between you and God. It is a spiritual communion. Personal prayer is an absolutely spiritual connection. And that's what Jesus was trying to say there. For the Jews to be told to have a personal conversation with God in the privacy of one's home was something very different that they had heard till now. You see, in personal prayer, you get alone with God. It's you and God alone. In private, personal prayer, your words are always different from what you would say in public corporate prayer. Now look at yourselves and just think of those times when you pray to God by yourselves in your prayer closet at home, just you and God and the types of words you use and the time when you come to church and you join with others, small group, larger group, whatever, and the prayer you make. Aren't the words different? You see, there are some things that just cannot be said in public because, because that would just become food for juicy gossip. There are some things, some very intimate things that you can share only with your Father in heaven. And those are the things that Jesus is teaching in this passage. I've heard people say in our church, elsewhere, please pray for uh, somebody known to me. That person has a relationship issue with her husband or, or his wife. Please pray that it will be sorted out. So my question would be, who is this person? And they say, no, 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 I can't tell you that. 
you can't tell me because it's obviously a very personal, intimate issue. You don't want me to know. So what am I supposed to pray now? I'm supposed to pray, God, there are 7 billion people in this world and I don't know how many of them have got relationship issue with their spouse. God sort it out. I don't know who I'm praying for. You see, that's the corporate kind of prayer. Because we don't bring personal issues into it. But if I have a personal problem, if I have a problem in my home right now, who do I go to? I go to God personally. I can just go and say, Father, sort this out for me. I don't know how to deal with this one. What am I supposed to do? Am I at fault? This is what happened. And I can tell him every intricate detail because I know he knows. You see, that's what happens in personal prayer. You can share your most intimate secrets, something that you can share with no one else. You can share it with your father in heaven. And that's why we need to have personal private prayer. In verse 7, Jesus gives us another instruction to follow. And that is this. Do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. For they think they will be heard for their many words. I actually like it better in the New International Version and the New Living Translation. NIV says, do not keep on babbling. And NLT says, don't babble on and on. The Greek word for babble is batalogio, which means, the definition is this, idle, mindless chatter, mimicking the sounds of meaningless jabber. Okay, it sounds like Greek and Latin, doesn't it? Babble is defined as idle, mindless chatter, mimicking the sounds of meaningless jabber. Don't use vain repetitions. That's what Jesus said. Now, if you go to the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18, now we won't go into those details. You know the story very well of how, you know, fire came down and lit up the sacrifice of, uh, of Elijah. And you read that the prophets of Baal, they called on their God's name from morning to noon. And then from midday to evening, they jumped and they screamed and they danced and then they cut themselves and did every kind of thing. Nothing happened. And then Isaiah comes, sorry, Elijah comes and he just says two lines and fire comes down from heaven. It's not in vain repetition. that your personal prayers are answered. And Jesus gives us the reason. You see, Jesus justifies what he says. He's giving us a reason for keeping our personal prayers crisp and non-repetitive. He says, for your father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. Now, when, when I was a student, and uh, uh, you know, you, you write your exams, which whatever it was, whether I was in high school or in my pre-university or in medical school or wherever it was. You know, you have to write. In India, we have this thing of writing essays, which run into pages, and it's usually measured by the number of pages you write. And if you are in a history class, you better write about twelve pages on one story. Okay, so basically, you are babbling away into that uh, history history page. Okay. How do you write? The story will, is not there for 12 pages. So you write it in active voice, then you write it in passive voice, then you write it in some other version of English. You put the same thing over and over and over again till you make half a page. And then you take the next point and you write it again like that, another half a page. So if you're good in that, you know, the, the grammar of English, 
you are able to write 12 pages quite easily. But if you condense it, it's probably just one page of matter that you have written. Now let's please remember that our God is intelligent God. He is a God of wisdom. So you don't have to keep repeating to him the same thing over and over again in different versions. Active voice, passive voice, active passive voice or whatever else is there in English. I don't know. You don't need that one. And Jesus is justifying the statement to us. He says, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In other words, we do not need to use prayer as a time to inform God of something or anything. We don't need to wake up God and tell him that he's missed something. He knows all things that concern you and me. So, and so comes the question. If God already knows all my needs, why does he say that I should come to him in prayer? That's a good question, isn't it? Intelligent question. Now, the good answer to that is something that the French theologian, John Calvin, said in the 16th century. He said, in praying, we declare that from him alone, we hope and expect, both for ourselves and for others, something good. Okay, in praying, we are declaring that we expect, we hope and expect something good. This is a fairly good explanation as to why we need to pray. But the best answer is what Jesus himself said in Luke 11 verses 9 and 10 and Matthew 7, 7 and 8, where he said, ask and it will be given to you for, who, for everyone who asks receives. That's an instruction. So Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you for everyone who asks receives. And so with that introduction to the aspect of personal prayer, which is from verse 5 to verse 8, we come to verse 9, where Jesus starts by saying, in this manner, therefore pray. See how Jesus starts? He says, in this manner. Jesus does not want us to memorize this prayer and repeat it time and time and time again. Then it becomes repetitive prayer and he's just told us no repetitive prayer. He says in NKJV, in this manner, therefore, in this manner. He is saying that you and I should use this prayer as a model or a template because it has certain elements in it that please the heart of God. It's actually a misnomer to call it the Lord's Prayer. It's a model prayer of the Lord or it's a template prayer of the Lord. Okay, so what are these different aspects? So I'm going to spend some time on that. Hopefully we'll finish soon. Number one, speak to your father in heaven. Verse 9b, speak to your father in heaven, our father in heaven. This was not going to be easy for the Jews to digest. How could they call God as their father? How dare Jesus, the almighty, call the almighty God as father? In John verse chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, it is written like this. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. They couldn't take it. You cannot say God is my father. But Jesus was now saying, this is, it is in this manner that you pray. How? Our father who art in heaven. You see, Jesus emphasized the intimacy, the relationship that needs to exist between you and God the father. 
And that's difficult for a person who does not know God, who has not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. How would you, how can you um, address God the Father as my Father? We all have earthly fathers, some of whom may still be living. Now thank God for these earthly fathers. Thank God for them. But when we address our Father in heaven, we are talking to one who is perfect, without blemish, without fault, and who employs wisdom, judgment, discernment, without bias. And so when we lay our innermost thoughts to our Father in heaven, you and I can rest assured, we can be absolutely confident that the answer we receive will be a perfect answer. And that's where we start, a relationship. Speak to your Father in heaven, number one. Number two, honor your Father. And I'll keep insisting on this word, your Father, because that relationship is the fundamental, foundational relationship for personal prayer. Honor your Father. Verse 9, third part, C part. Hallowed be your name. The Greek definition of the word hallowed, hagiostito, is to set apart, to be made holy, to be honored above all else. God's name is not to be used casually, as some people do. The Jews, they held that the name of God was special, that they wouldn't even mention it. Now, if you look at the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will see that in the Gospel of Matthew, which is primarily addressed to the Jews, God's kingdom is always described as kingdom of heaven. But in the remaining three Gospels, which are primarily addressed to the Gentiles, you will see that God's kingdom is addressed as the kingdom of God. Because to the Jews, you cannot say kingdom of God. You cannot say kingdom of Yahweh. It is, it is not right to utter the name of God. And so it is kingdom of heaven. So now they know what it is to have God's name as special. But Gentiles had no problem in calling God by any name. After all, they had many gods. So it was okay for them. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, we read this about Jesus. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. If this is what Paul writes about God the Son, shouldn't the same apply to God the Father? That at the name of God the Father, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Today, do we honor the name of God above every other name? Or do we take his name casually, jokingly, frivolously? In a world we live in, there are many ways in which the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are so casually thrown around. Do you use the name of God in such a manner? In fact, I will ask you one question. When we say praise the Lord as a greeting, praise the Lord, do we really mean it? Or is it just a phrase that has replaced, hello, good morning? Think about it. Number three, accept your father's will. Accept your father's will. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we sincerely examine this statement, most of us will recognize that it is not a statement we honestly like to make. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We want our will to be done, not the Father's will. We say we want God's will to be done, but so very often we tell him what he needs to do because it is our will. We think we are intelligent beings. 
We think that we know what we want tomorrow. We think that we have plans beautifully laid out for the next couple of years. It is only when these plans crumble, you realize that your will does not stand the test of time. It is God's will that matters. Today, do we understand God's will for us? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And what is the will of the Lord? Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. So don't tell him how he needs to plan your future. That's what Abraham did. And we have Ishmael as a result. And the world has suffered as a result of that ever since Abraham decided to help God in his plan. God had a plan to prosper Abraham. Today, do we understand God's will for us? Are we living in the perfect will of God or are we living in the permissive will of God? You see, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we need to surrender completely to the kingship of God. His will can never be wrong. And the second part of that verse is on earth as it is in heaven. I won't elaborate on this except to tell you this. What is your will in heaven that needs to be done on earth? You can ask God that question. So what is God's will on heaven that needs to be done on earth? Turn the question around and say, what are the principles and the values in the kingdom of heaven that you and I need to practice on earth? And if we can practice those values and principles in the, of the kingdom of heaven, if we can put that into day-to-day -day practice in our life, that's kingdom on earth. You see, to know the answer to this question, really, it's going to take time. But you need to read Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, and Matthew 13. It's all about the kingdom of heaven. And you will have your answer there. Number four, trust your God for daily provision. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Now bread is a symbol of what we need daily to survive. It could be wisdom, it could be strength, it could be discernment, it could be ability, skills, it could be food or clothing or any other personal need. Now when I was in my 20s, and that's about a century back, you know, we never spoke of money as money. We always used the words dough or bread. Do you have any dough? Are you carrying any bread in your pocket? Now, when we talk about that, we all understood that we're talking about money. We're not talking about the edible bread. Now, I don't know what's the, the common word that's used today. Maybe it's, are you having enough bitcoins or are you having enough cryptocurrencies? I don't know. Okay. But bread was a common usage to describe your needs, every need. It's symbolic of our daily needs. And God had already shown the Israelites. He had already provided for Israelites daily bread. In Exodus chapter 16 verse 4, we read these words. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. If they took more than a daily portion and if anything was left behind, it would stink and it would have worms in it. You cannot use it the next day. So they had to live by the day. And Jesus was now giving the same instructions to his disciples. Learn to trust your father for your daily needs. 
not for tomorrow for today and not for your daily greed that's the same instruction Jesus is giving you and me today learn to trust God for your daily needs are you willing am I willing to trust God for our daily provisions number five forgive as the father forgives verse 12 and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors the NLT puts it this way and forgive us our sins just as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us now this is a conditional verse and this is why this model prayer of Jesus is taught only in Sunday school and Friday school and not in adult church you see as adults we have a problem forgiving others we want to pray to God we want the blessings of God we want the forgiveness of God but we often do not want to forgive those who might have done something against us we still want to go by the old Levitical law Leviticus 24 verses 19 and 20 this is our guideline for the Jews this was the guideline for the Jews and maybe it's a guideline for some of us Leviticus 24 19 to 20 if a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done so shall it be done to him fracture for fracture eye for eye tooth for tooth as he has caused disfigurement of a man so it shall be done to him now is this the principle you and I are following today Jesus is telling us that our father is asking us to forgive every small or big insult imagined or real that you might have received we need to take that first step in forgiveness and God does the rest this aspect of forgiveness is so important that Jesus repeats it after he concludes the prayer in Matthew chapter 6 verses 14 and 15 he focuses again on forgiveness now I'm going to read to you how it is written in the contemporary English version the CEV verse 14 if you forgive others for the wrongs they, that they do to you your father in heaven will forgive you but if you don't forgive others your father will not forgive your sins brother please take off that NLT from the screen I want the CEV if you have got it contemporary English version I'll tell you why I'm focusing on this particular version if you forgive others for the wrongs that they do to you not for the sins that they do to you for the wrongs that they do to you your father in heaven will forgive you and in verse 15 it says but if you don't forgive others your father will not forgive your sins you see the punishment for sin is death the punishment for wrongs is not death so for my sins I should die but if somebody does wrong to me the person doesn't need to die for that it's not a capital punishment and that's why I like the CEV if you forgive others for the wrongs that they do to you it's not a capital punishment but you forgive them but if you don't do that which is the small things the little things your father will not forgive your sins for which you should go for death you are entitled to capital punishment and if you want to escape that capital punishment you need God's forgiveness what's the step your step forgive your brother your sister your neighbor your colleague your father your mother your son your daughter it doesn't matter who it is whoever it is forgive them those wrongs that they have done unto you 
Today, are we prepared to let go of all the grudges, the bitterness you hold against someone and forgive them? You see, then and only then will we be a recipient of God's forgiveness. My final two points before I end. Trust your father to keep you safe. Trust your father to keep you safe. Verse 13a. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now the King James Version, King James, King James Version and the American Standard Version, they, they put this line as this. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Evil is an entity. Most other versions of the Bible, including the Greek version, records it as, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The evil one is a person. Okay, we know that person as Satan. Okay. So you see, now it, it becomes more impactful. God needs to deliver us from Satan, the evil one. Not from an entity. It's, it's just a material thing. No. He's got to deliver us from Satan. And that's what we are praying. Do not lead us into temptation and deliver me from the evil one. In James chapter 1, 12 to 14, we can understand this a little better. It says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So when we say, do not lead us into temptation, the, end, the NLT puts it nicely. It says, do not let us yield to temptation. Temptation is there all over. But don't let me yield to that temptation. It's not God who leads us to temptation. God tests us. Trials are there. But God does not lead us to temptation. <coughs> Instead, we pray that we will not yield to temptation because each one of us is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and is enticed. So our prayer is that we will not put ourselves in a place where we are likely to sin, but to keep us away from such areas. Number seven, and that's my final point in the prayer, acknowledge that God is God, acknowledge that your father is sovereign. <coughs> Verse 13b For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Verbalize and acknowledge that our father is indeed king. He is almighty God. He is sovereign. Nobody on earth compares with him. And Jesus was trying to Tell his disciples to embrace this almighty God as one's own father. As a little child would just come and embrace her mother or her father. Without embarrassment, you and I need to embrace God the same way. Because he is our father. So what are you ashamed about? Embrace him. Acknowledge that he is sovereign. He is king of kings. He is lord of lords. And today, are we able to embrace our heavenly father? And are we able to declare that you and I are worthy sons and daughters of the king of kings, the creator of the universe, the one who breathed life into you and me? That's where we are. So as I close, and as I ask Pastor uh, Brother Marcus to, to come up to close this session, 
I just mentioned the take-home messages that I think you should have got by this time. Number one, in its entirety, the Lord's Prayer is not the easiest prayer to use as a model because it requires that you and I need to change some of the ways we think. Number two, you are being molded to become the image of Christ as you follow the pattern of prayer that he has laid for us. Number three, our prayer to God is not a shopping list or a list of our troubles. It is simply a love conversation between a father and a child. And as you pray to God, pray to communicate with him, not to impress men. And finally, as you practice righteousness, practice it with the intention of pleasing God, not men. God bless you all, brothers and sisters. Brother Marcus, please take over. Praise the Lord.